Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Gord Martineau. Gord's award-winning career in radio and television broadcasting was most notably spent here in Toronto over 39 years as anchor for City News, where he led coverage of our most significant local, national, and international stories. In addition to Gemini Awards and Canadian Screen Awards, Gord was given a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Radio, Television, Digital News Directors Association and a Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Medal for his community work and involvement with charitable organizations. Welcome, Gord, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Uh, I'm at home and I'm great. I'm feeling good. And thanks for having me on. Well, it's my pleasure. What part of town are you in, Gord? I'm in the Midtown area. And is that where you were always based during your entire career here? No, but I, I lived in the Midtown area in several places uh, over, let's say, 40 years, maybe more. And uh, I just enjoy it. It's, you know, it's where I like to be. Seven years ago in 2016, you signed off for the final time after 39 years as the face of City News. Bring us up to speed. How is Gord Martineau? I'm fine. And, uh, you know, I'm involved in a number of different projects, uh, a lot of it uh, being charity work. I uh, am the international ambassador for the Herbie Fund at Sick Kids Hospital. And for anyone who doesn't uh, know what that is, it's a, a charitable organization begun in 1979 when an uh, eight-month-old baby named Herbie Quinones was brought to the Brooklyn, the Brooklyn Hospital Medical Institute, I think it's called now. He, ha- he had a very rare condition. His esophagus and trachea were conjoined, so he couldn't swallow properly. It was going to kill him. Uh, he had been resuscitated, I was told, 17 times by the time he was nine months old. So his parents brought him to the hospital, and in true U.S. fashion, which is unfortunate, sorry, no money, no surgery, they were Puerto Rican. And so there was a reporter from the Toronto Star, Dale Brazow, who was there when all this took place. He, was, he didn't witness any of it, but he was told what was going on by a nurse. And so he came back to Toronto and he said to the former chairman of Metro Toronto, Paul Godfrey, can you do something? Uh, can you make an appeal or something? This kid's going to die. It's ridiculous. And all, all it takes is money. So Paul Godfrey uh, spoke to his wife and his wife said, you've got to do something. Because she had read the story in the Star. So he issued an appeal, hold a news conference, and kids were giving up their lunch money, walking to school instead of taking the TTC uh, about $4,000 was collected in no time, which was a lot of money in those days. And in the meantime, the story broke big in New York. And New York State was so embarrassed that they, uh, that they had uh, you know, said no to the surgery that they agreed to pay for the surgery. The only hitch was there were only two doctors in the world who knew how to do this particular intricate surgery. One of them happened to be the doctor who pioneered the surgery, pioneered the technique. And his name was Dr. Bob Filler. And he happened to be the chief of surgery at Sick Kids Hospital. So he said, well, bring me the child. I don't, I don't want any money. Just, and so up he came. He had the surgery and went back. And now he is, what, 44 years old, 45 years old. And big strapping guy, tattoos, earrings. You know, he, he's doing fine in New York. And, and uh, we keep in touch with him periodically. So a very successful story. And since then, since 1979, over a Almost 1,000 children from over 110 countries uh, have their lives have been saved due to the donations of the people of Toronto and everywhere else who knows who know about the Sick Kids Fund, uh, the Herbie Fund, and you know their lives have been saved and, and their families. It's a nightmare for their families because you know each night when you go to bed, 
all you're thinking about is, is tomorrow the day I'm going to lose my child? Is it tomorrow? You know, it won't leave them alone. The stress factor is enormous. And the stress factor means that invariably the parents are going to get sick. And when they do, they can't work to raise money to feed the other kids in the household. So it's a huge downward spiral for everyone involved. And so I think it's a wonderful charity to be associated with and to help. And I'm happy to do so and, and you know, really happy for the parents because the, when we show up, my cameraman, my camera supervisor and producer, Steve Bourne, when we show up on the doorstep uh, in, in whatever country they're in and, you know, talk to them, they realize when they see us, this is real. They are going to come. And so they've never been on a plane before. They've never been outside their home village in most, country, in most uh, circumstances. And so this is massive for them. And it's like going to Disneyland, you know, for them. So it's a wonderful experience because it's self-serving in a way because you get to feel good about yourself. But overall, it's a wonderful thing to bring relief to these distraught families. Well, Gord, you certainly led by example, and I can see how you got the passion for all your charity work. As you note, instead of just cutting a check, you're hands-on, and you benefit from seeing all the good that's come from it. You realize, boy, you know, I'm in a position where uh, I can do something. Because early in my career at City, whenever I went somewhere, you know, a charity event or, you know, making speeches or hosting luncheons or whatever, they would send a camera because they felt that, you know, you're a part of the community, let's reflect that, and, and rightfully so, and so they did. And so I thought to myself, this is a weapon. I can use this to raise money to help people who need help. And I have this aversion, I don't know what it is, always have had this aversion to, peep, to seeing people who are unhappy. I can't stand it. So, you know, it's in me to, to, to do something to help, and, and I'm happy to do it. Well, Gord, let's go back all the way, if I may, get the whole Gord Martineau story. You are yeah. not a native Torontonian. Where were you born? And describe your upbringing, please. Montreal. My upbringing was, was really good. It was it's really interesting because my, I'll, I'll tell you a bit about my family background. My grandmother came from County Cork in Ireland, and uh, she and her sister came over because they saw that they saw, you know, no future for them in Ireland. So they came over, as did many people, to Canada. They landed, uh, and through the course of, of their lives earlier on, uh, my grandmother married this guy named Martineau. And they had five children together, and he left her with the five kids, and there she was trying to raise five children. So um, I ended up with a French name, Martineau is my, my family name. And my parents sent me to an English school, so, you know, everyone I knew was English, and I, I lived in a suburb called Verdun, which is in the southwest part of the island of Montreal. And so that's how I grew up, and um, it was a great experience. I mean, you know, a lot of cool things happened to me when I was young. And uh, I developed, a, I don't know why, but I developed a, a very uh, sincere interest in the English language, poetry and, and reading, and, and, you know, fiction, nonfiction, didn't matter what it was, literature. So uh, that was my introduction to something that I really loved. And I didn't really fully realize it at the time, but it was an enormous help to me throughout my career. When I was 19 years old, I had just finished working at a, a hospital for children with mental disabilities in Verdun called Douglas Hospital. I was working making baby food and working in the kitchen. So I had made $92. I had $92 in the bank. And prior to that, I had issued a number of tapes, audio tapes, that I'd sent to radio stations because I knew when I was 14 what I wanted to do, and there was no doubt in my mind that no one was going to stop me. 
And I realized later that so many people go sometimes for their whole lives, not, not knowing what they really want to do and not being able to follow their dreams. But uh, I did, and I was lucky. But the, the, the problem was the tapes that I had sent out were recorded on what we call a half-track machine. So every time you make a mistake and you go back over it and re-record, you get a, another track. So there are two tracks, and then three, and then four. So <laughs> wherever I set the tapes, the radio stations were not able to play them back and, and figure out you know, whether I was any good. So I never got any responses. And in that summer of 1967, I went with a friend of mine uh, who was a Venezuelan immigrant, a guy named Jose, and we wanted to see what had happened in Detroit with the riots. And so we drove to Detroit, and I'd finished my job. I had 92 bucks in the bank, went, went to Detroit, hung out for a couple of days, came back to Montreal. And when I did, my father told me there was a phone message that he said, hey, kid, some guy from Halifax called. You want to call him back? <laughs> so, okay. So I called the guy, and he was a manager of a radio station, and he said, look, we're holding auditions. We need an all-night news person, a news presenter. If you want to come down and audition, that's fine. If you don't, well, see you later. And so I went. Um, I got on a plane, I bought a, a return ticket from Montreal <laughs> to Halifax and went down, did an audition. And for some reason, maybe they fell down and hurt their heads or something, but they gave me the job, uh, through a l l lengthy series of discussions. And so that was a learning experience to me. And it was like going to university because university, that door was not open to me. My family could not afford to send me to university. So uh, I learned everything I could about broadcasting, about news, about journalism. I spent three years doing that. So that was basically, for me, the equivalent of a degree. And then after the three years, I decided I wanted to go back to Montreal. I missed my friends, family, etc. I auditioned and, and got a job at CJAD in Montreal Radio Station. And uh, that was the beginning of my uh, radio career in Montreal. And um, after that, I realized after a year, even less than a year, that there's no way I was going to advance uh, in the business uh, unless somebody died or left. And so that was not likely. So I left, went back to Halifax, got a job in what they called a rocker, uh, a radio station, which the rock and roll music was their format. And I got the job as the morning news person. And that's, that's the job to get in radio, is morning drive, it's called. There's two uh, really important let's say, or enviable positions to be in in radio, and that's morning and afternoon drive. So I got that job and, and was having fun doing it. And one day, the news director came to me and said, hey, you, do, do you want to do this job in TV? I said, what? What are you talking about? Because the radio station, CJCH, was a CTV affiliate and did a newscast every afternoon at 1 o'clock. You had to write it and, and present it. And I went, oh, uh, sure, okay, whatever. <laughs> So I did. It was a five-minute newscast. So I wrote it and delivered it. And I went, hmm, I kind of like this TV <laughs> thing. So I kept that in the back of my mind. Went back to Montreal to CKGM, which was a radio station, also a rocker. And I got a job there as the afternoon drive person. Worked out well for me. One day, um, I'm reading the Sunday newspaper. But I read an item that the weekend newsman from the CTV station, CFCF, was leaving and going to Calgary. And I thought, hmm, I'd like that job. So I, I approached CFCF, and they said, well, you can come in for an audition if you like. And so I did. The only hook was, if you got the job, you had to do five days radio and two days television, Monday to Friday radio, and then Saturday and Sunday television. I never had, I got the job eventually, but I never had a day off for uh, almost three years. But I, I wanted the TV job. So 
I went into CFCF and they handed me the script and they said, okay, we're roll tape in, in 15 minutes. I looked at it and I went, are you kidding me? This is all I have to do? <laughs> and because I'm very fortunate that when I see something, I'll remember it. Oh, yeah. But, um, you know, so that was a, a, a very useful thing for me. And, and I looked at the script and I went, this is a breeze. I mean, you're kidding me. This is an audition. Okay. And I had it done and, you know, I was ready for it in about three minutes. And they came back after 15 and said, okay, we're ready. And so I delivered the whole thing to camera, meaning I never looked down because mm. I thought, just in my own mind, uh, how would I like someone to speak to me? Well, I don't want them looking down at a piece of paper because I think subliminally that means that you don't know what you're doing or you don't know what, or you're not certain of the information. And so I thought I delivered the whole thing to camera and they were, they were amazed <laughs> because there was no teleprompter in those days. Yeah. And so they said, uh, well, okay. <laughs> you got the job, but you have to do five days radio. And I said, okay. So I did that for three years. 1974, I get a call from CFTO in Toronto, the CTV affiliate. And they said, uh, we'd like you to consider auditioning for our night beat show, which was a late newscast, nightly news. And I thought at the time, I didn't want to leave Montreal because I just started a, an audio production company and it was doing okay. And so I thought, why would I want to do that? But then I realized, look, you want to be a broadcasting, you have to go where the primo jobs are. So I went, did, did the audition, and I thought I was horrible. But um, I guess they thought otherwise, so they called me <laughs> a few days and said, okay, you're on. That very day when they called was the day that I got my T4 slip. So I knew exactly to the penny what I had made the year before. And it was 18200 and some odd dollars. <laughs> wow. And, and I thought, and actually it was a good wage at the time. Sure. And um, I thought to myself, well, I'm not going to go for the same money. <laughs> this is, I thought I was like Mr. Negotiator. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how sad that was. But anyway, I decided, okay, it's going to cost you $22,000. And the guy on the phone said, well, there's no way we're not going to pay that. And I said, well, I'm sorry. <laughs> and he said, well, just hang on a second. I'll talk to my, my superiors. So he came back after about two minutes, said, okay, you're on. And then it was, oh my God, I have to move to Toronto. I'd never <laughs> been to Toronto. Wow. Only to, you know, I'd been on the 401, that was it. And so I thought, okay, here we go. So that was March of 1974. And there was a big controversy involving me before I even got to the city. Uh-oh. Because they wanted to change my name from Martineau to Martin. And... I didn't know what to do about that. And I, I said, well, it wasn't unusual for anyone in broadcasting to not use their real name. It was very common to mm -hmm. use any name that you wanted. But I thought, no, this is me. So I decided, no, I don't want you to change my name. But before I had a chance to tell them, Blake Kirby from the Globe and Mail phoned a CTV correspondent in Montreal and said, so what's the deal with this Martin guy? And they said, uh, who? Martin, it says right here in the news release. Oh, no, no, no. That's, his name is Martineau. And so Blake Kirby went, uh-oh, they're trying to change this kid's name. So he wrote a piece on it. McLean's Magazine wrote a piece on it. And, you know, before I even got to Toronto, there was this controversy about me. And I thought, oh, God, how do I get through this? But anyway, John Bassett Sr. stepped in and said, that's enough of this. The kid's name is Martineau. That's what we're using. All and right. good for him. Uh, he was a wonderful uh, elderly gentleman. Anyway, so that's how I started at CFTO. And then um, I think it was three years after I started, two and a half years after I started, 
the people from CFCF approached me back in Montreal. Their anchor had left and gone to CBC, their main six o'clock anchor. They wanted me to come back. I thought about it and I went, um, not sure. And they said, well, here's how much we're prepared to pay. And I went, what? <laughs> it was, uh, you know, quite a bit of money. And I thought, oh, well, I know the job. I know the city of my hometown. So I'll take a shot at this and see how it works. I was there only two months, gone after just two months. And I said, you know what? This is not working out, folks. I'm sorry. But, you know, I'm going to have to leave. And I had nowhere to go. And they said, well, just a minute. They sat me down and they said, we are owned by Multiple Access. Multiple Access was one of Canada's first kind of high-tech companies. And they owned a station in Toronto called City TV. And they said, uh, we want you to go and work at City TV in Toronto. And I said, are you insane? Nobody in his right mind would work at City. The place was a madhouse. They didn't even have a newscast. They had, you know, these like Jerry Springer kind of programs where people would, you know, engage in in fist fights during the show. It was just a madhouse. And so I said, uh, no, I can't do that. And they said, well, just hold on. We want you to go to New York and speak to Moses Neimer. Okay. So one morning I wake up in Montreal, get on a flight to New York, go and meet Moses at the Pierre Hotel in New York. And it happened to be the very day of the great Eastern Seaboard blackout. There was an oh entire <laughs> electrical blackout on the entire East Coast of Canada and the United States on that day. No air conditioning. I'm wearing a three-piece suit because I want to impress people. And he wants to go for a walk in Central Park. So, okay. So we do that. And we came back. And he explained the whole philosophy, which was, if you were looked at any newscast and switched the anchors like, you know, in a shell game, the newscasts were essentially all the same. They always led with, a, with an international or national story. Always. Never local. He said, we're going to do the opposite. We're going to focus on the city of Toronto. And I thought it was a great idea. I really liked it. I was unsure about my capability at that point. But they brought me in to be a disruptor. They wanted to do everything in a different way. And we did over the years. And we pioneered so many changes in broadcasting. It's astonishing. And at first, people laughed at us because our approach was different. Uh, we had no money but we made do with what we had and we caught a lot of attention because we were so different and we really were in the streets of toronto showing people in the city what happened the genius of it was at the end of every day every human being thinks about their immediate circumstance their home their family their job uh you know their their community their country then their interests tend to broaden and, and they'll probably think about other things but Home is where the heart is, and that's especially true in broadcasting. So we had enormous success with it, and you've seen it over the years. So absolutely, it was an amazing experience. So Moses Snymer has given you this pitch. You are not from Toronto. You don't know your way around. Yeah. You fly back from New York to uh, Toronto. You meet with City News Director Joanne Schaefer. On the flight back to Montreal from Toronto, what made you decide to take the job? Because now, as you've indicated, all these changes you guys made after. But I'm curious what made you make that huge leap to accept this opportunity to join I, yeah. City TV. I had already been in broadcasting for about 13 years at that time. And I thought, I either know what I'm doing or I don't. Now's a good time to find out. And if it doesn't work, then obviously I'll have to you know, find employment elsewhere. But um, on that flight back to, uh, to Montreal that day, I had agreed to work at City. And I thought to myself, wow, what have I got myself involved in? You know, because there were so many unanswered questions. 
and it was not like an established station where there were systems and money and the appropriate equipment to do what we needed to do. So it was a huge gamble. And I thought, so what? And, and I even took a $15,000 pay cut uh, mm. to come back uh, to City TV in Toronto. I really wanted this to work because um, I wanted to work for my personal professional aspirations and also because uh, you know the, the people that I was introduced to that, that were going to work there were all just wonderful people. A lot of them were totally green. Um, and so this was a chance for me to put my stamp on something and, and I took it and it worked. Well, I'll say, and you certainly did put your stamp on it. I do want to ask you as we go through your career that in 1980, you had an 11-day tenure at Global News where That's you right. briefly co-anchored with the mother of Matthew Perry from Friends That's right. before immediately returning to City. What made you leave and immediately come back? I was having problems with City negotiating a new contract at that time. I didn't like their approach and they were taking me for granted. And I thought, you know, I worked hard. Uh, I think that should be reflected in the salary that I was going to make or that, that, that I wanted to make. And so I told them, uh, you know what, never mind. I had a call from David Mintz, who was the president of Global Television at the time, and he offered me a job with a substantial increase. It looked really good. Um, he wanted me to do the six o'clock newscast. Fine. That's what I was doing. And, you know, this would be a totally different situation for me. So um, I accepted it. I was there. Well, the first night I was on air, it was just insane. Uh, they had three news directors in the newsroom. You only need one, but there were three of them, and they all used to argue constantly. And most of them had newspaper backgrounds, so they didn't really know a lot about broadcasting. And the first night we were there, uh, the, my first newscast, they took me out to uh, George Bigliardi's, which was a well-known restaurant on Church Street in Toronto. And so we were there having dinner, and they were pounding I mean, pounding <laughs> martinis. And they got a pretty good buzz on, and then they started arguing. The place was packed, and they were raising their voices and arguing and arguing, and obviously inebriated. And everyone was looking over at the table going, what is, what is wrong with those people over there? It was embarrassing. I thought, what have I gotten myself into? This is a huge mistake. This is huge. They weren't listening to what I said. They wouldn't do what I thought they should do. And I walked. I had nowhere to go. And they threatened to sue me for half a million dollars, which was a lot of money in yep. 1980. And, uh, you know, I, I was working with Suzanne Perry, Matthew Perry's mom. She was a press secretary to Pierre Trudeau. And she uh. was fairly green when it came to broadcasting. I mean, she knew media, but uh, she had never done television. And this is unfortunate because she had no training at all, and they stuck her on the air. I mean, if I had had the opportunity to work with her, I think it would have been a much different outcome because I could have mentored her somewhat. And, uh, but that didn't happen. And so, as it turns out, she was dating Keith Morrison from CTV. <laughs> okay. And that's the guy she married. And the funny uh -huh. part is, in one of our press opportunities before, as we were getting the newscast rolling, because she was my co-anchor, we went to the uh, Sheraton Center Hotel where the Prime Minister was speaking. And he was attending an event, and she said, do you want to meet him? I said, oh, sure. You know, so I walked over, and we shook hands. And he turned to her, and he said, is this the guy you left me for? <laughs> and he thought I was Keith Morrison, I'm sure. And, and anyway, that was a funny evening. But uh, she was a lovely person. I haven't seen her since, and it's unfortunate because I'm, I'm sure that, you know, we could have shared a few laughs. But she was 
not treated properly there. And that gave me a pretty good indication that these guys have no idea what they're doing. So I left and okay. I got a call from Alan Waters, who owned Chum at the time. And uh, I went back to the city and the rest is history. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview with Gord Martineau, please check out the more than 100 additional episodes available anytime. We got other broadcasting icons, including Wendy Mesley, Terry O'Reilly, Nelson Millman, Paul Romanuk, and Ted Wallison. So many great behind-the-scenes stories directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7, 365, wherever you get your podcasts. Gord, you went back to City 1980. In your career there, you worked at both 99 Queen Street East and 299 Queen Street West. Yep. What sticks with you most about kind of working in those two different environments, two different buildings? Well, the first one, 99 Queen East, was a riot. It was an idea factory. It's important to note that all of the great ideas that City TV had, a lot of the enthusiasm for them came from the newsroom. It was the only place doing live television on City. Everything else was taped. And so you had fashion television, much music, the new music, so many brilliant concepts came out of that newsroom because of some of the people who worked in there. And so it was an enormously successful experience. But until we had ownership uh, with money, and that was Alan Waters, you know, broadcasting is something that requires a lot of sophisticated mechanics and engineer and, and engineering equipment. And we didn't have the money for that. But as soon as Alan Waters declared that he was going to buy the majority position in City TV, we knew we had the money. The sky was the limit. That's when the, all the ideas took off. An amazing experience and something I wouldn't trade for anything. Well, you talk about an ID, idea factory. And then certainly when you're over at 299 Queen Street West, that's what everyone remembers. All the great innovations. Yeah, and see, all the Oh, yeah. It was incredible. All of a sudden, we had all this elbow room. I mean, we were, uh, you know, at, at 99 Queen East, we were... It was like living in a box, a tiny little box. You know, we had no room for anything. We had one studio. That was it. But at City, you know, the, the iconic building at 299 Queen West, it was the original Ryerson Press building. The first Anne of Green Gables was published there. So it had a lengthy history. It was an opportunity to really expand. And I know that Moses was very excited about it because all of a sudden there were five floors of the building. And we only occupied the main floor and the basement for a basement for engineering and the main floor for our studio. But um, like I said, once Alan Waters took the position that he was going to, you know, uh, in, inject some cash into the business, then we knew we had the opportunity to do something great. And so we did. In broadcasting today, if you have an idea for something and you want to shoot it, uh, it's up to you to get it organized. In those days, th there were so many creative ideas. The idea was if, if you went to anybody, anyone in a power position in the city and said, look, I have an idea for this or that, they'd say, go out and shoot it. I want to see what it looks like. And so that's when you knew you had the backing of people with the power in the business to put across an idea that you uh, instituted yourself. And so that was still the case at 299 Queen West. I mean, the idea factory, the, the enthusiasm, the energy was, you could feel it when you walked in the building. It was great. We went to work every day, not knowing what was going to happen. I mm. remember meeting George Harrison uh, when I was going in the back of the building, coming out from the parking lot. And I went, hey, you're George Harrison. <laughs> hey, mate, how are you? And I thought, holy crap, that's George Harrison. And, you know, at 99 Queen East, for example, it was this tiny little elevator. It was, honest to God, the size of a phone booth. And I was on the elevator with Janet Jackson. 
And I couldn't believe I was uh, looking at her. Hi, how are you? <laughs> you know, I was a little tongue-tied. But you never knew what was going to happen. The place was so exciting. I remember one time Annie Lennox, you know, from Eurythmics, was yep. stuck in an elevator. She'd come in to do an interview. And, you know, so many wacky things happened in that, in both buildings. Uh, but again, the energy, it was electric. You know, and, and you could feel it every day when you went in there. It was just, it's such a fun place to be. And everyone was on the same page. Everyone went to work every day thinking, wow, what's going to happen today? This is amazing. Speaking of a fun place with the wacky infrastructure, Gord, you have to tell us a little more about the iconic city news cruiser affixed to the side of 299 right. Queen Street West, because I think you can verify it's not just a model. Yes. Steve Bourne, uh, my, my supervisor and producer at the time, was, was a newbie at City, and he was a camera. That was his vehicle. And one night he had an accident where he slammed into a streetcar during a snowstorm. And, the, and Moses decided, no, we're not going to repair the vehicle. This is going to continue looking the way it looks because it looks like it's been through a war. It looks like it's been in the streets and done a heck of a job. And, and so eventually, when the technology got to the point where we needed a, a, a huge live eye, that was, that was Canada's first live eye, by the way. And so he decided, well, let's stick it on the side of the, on the, side of the building. And I thought, what a great idea. It was kind of a comic book situation. But um, everyone, like you, you would get people... Every day we were there, every day. And we were there for, what, 13 years or something? Uh, you would get people stopping, taking pictures of it, you know, tourists and, and the like. I thought it was a brilliant idea. And that was our first live eye. And I was disappointed when CTV bought uh, City and they also bought 2.4. That was a mistake. They should never have been able to buy 2.4. They already had a news channel. But anyway, that was a government decision. But they painted over the doors and more or less erased the city pulse sign that was on the side, and I, that was pretty sad. But, uh, you know, that's broadcasting, that's the business, but that's how it got there. Well, in addition to 99 Queen Street East and 299 Queen Street West, Gord, I think you had a burgeoning skill as a real estate person because you were involved in the move from 299 Queen Street West to Dundas Square. That's right. Um, you gave the real estate lead <laughs> right. to none other than Mr. Ted Rogers. Why don't you tell us about that? That's right. Um, so I didn't know that Ted Rogers' first love was real estate. I didn't know that. And anyway, he came into the newsroom at 299 Queen West and said, now that the government has made the decision that we have to, that, that you know, the company is being broken up, uh, that 2-4 is going to C CTV and we have to go on our own. He said, we need a place to go. Does anyone have any ideas? I did. I was, a, you know, I still am a cyclist and, and I used to cycle downtown all the time, just something to do. I loved it. And so I knew that building was empty in Dundas Square. It was owned by the former Olympic Spirit Group out of Geneva. And it was basically built for uh, interactive games, an example of interactive games that people could play that Olympians took part in. You know, bobsled runs and that sort of thing. But it never really took off. And there was a restaurant in the building and the whole thing failed. And so they, they boarded it up and that was it. It was just going to sit there until somebody bought it. And so I talked to a friend and I said, you know who owns that building? That's when I found out it was the Olympic Spirit Group. Is it for sale? Yes, they've turned down a bunch of offers. And I said, well, okay. We did some more investigating. And I phoned Ted Rogers on a Thursday afternoon. And I said, Ted, here it is. I'm sorry to lay this on you. Uh, it's a bit of a quick turnaround. But next Tuesday, Google is going to sign an offer to buy the building. And they're going to sublet a couple of floors. So I'm sorry to say that if you want to make a move, you kind of have to do it now. 
He got in the car with his wife, Loretta, drove down, looked at the building, wrote the check. I was floored <laughs> because I said to him, you know, this is city TV. We have to be in the heart of the city. You can't put us like, you know, one suggestion was that we'd be located at Jarvis and Bloor. Well, there's nothing really there except an insurance company across the yeah. street. And it doesn't really show you the city, but, you know, Dundas Square is it. And so he agreed, he bought the building and I was floored and I was delighted that he did. And you got a, uh, did you think you had a career in real estate? You must have made you think I can do this. <laughs> no, no, no. I, you know, I'm a newbie at all that kind of stuff. But uh, there was a, uh, I think, uh, an honorarium of a couple of thousand dollars. I think it was $5,000. I'm not sure. Which uh, I donated to the Herbie Fund. All right. Yeah. Well, everyone won. Yep. On a serious note, Gord, you had begun your career with City back in 1977 as yep. anchor of City Pulse. You signed off for the last time from City News on February 29th, 2016. Yep. Many observers feel Gord Martineau was thrown overboard by Rogers. When you look back on 2016 with a 2023 lens, do you want to comment on, on your departure from City News? Yeah, my departure from City was. Um... It was their idea. Let's put it that way. It was not mine. Uh, I would have stayed there for another, at least another couple of years, three, four years, uh, because if it ain't broke, don't break it. But I think the squeeze was on financially and that there were a lot of people in the financial aspects or the financial areas of, of Rogers Communications that were making those decisions. That was the decision they made. And um, I was sad to hear it because I had, you know, at least a couple more years where I could have delivered the, the, the evening news. And I think that, you know, aside from that, there's a reason why people watch certain people on television. You bond with the person. So you watch this or that newscast for whatever reason, but you bond with the people who are there. And subconsciously, and the same is true in radio, if you wake up in the morning and you turn on your radio as you're, as you're waking up and your person isn't on the air, that's subliminally uh, upsetting. So... You know, when, when your person isn't there, it's like a wholesale change. And uh, it, it's a change that you don't necessarily like as a viewer or listener, but it happened. And it's unfortunate, but that's the way it was. And they wanted to throw a big party and have a cake. And I just thought, nah, what's the point? You know, uh, if I'm gone, I'm gone. And mm -hmm. so I kept it quiet until I left. And I just signed off on February 27th, 2016 and walked out of the building. When I announced that Gord Martineau was coming on, many listeners to this podcast had questions. I have summarized them into the top three, so if I may. Uh -huh. Listener number one question. Does Gord keep in touch with co-anchor Ann Ruskowski? I haven't seen Ann in a couple of years, and I think she's got a great relationship going. She's married, and I, don't, I think she still lives in Toronto, but uh, no, I haven't spoken to her in a few years. Listener number two question. Does Gord keep in touch with co-anchor Deanie Petty? Uh, again. Uh, I've seen <laughs> Deanie a number of times over the years, and we, you know, we laugh about the good old days. But she, I think, she lives on a farm outside the city, and I rarely see her. You're gonna like listener question number three: Habs or Leafs? <laughs> well, I'm torn, okay, because I grew up in a family that was very hockey oriented. My father was a professional goaltender. Mm. My cousin Gordy played for the Habs, Gordy Callahan, and he and his brother Donnie won the European Hockey Championship in the 50s and were presented with medals and a trophy by uh, Prince Philip, uh, the husband of Queen Elizabeth. And, and so I have a deep kind of history in hockey. When I was a little boy, you know, just old enough to, to sit up on my own as a baby, 
uh, I can remember sitting in front of the television with my father, uh, watching the Habs games and listening to Danny Gallivan. And so I was a diehard Habs fan. I've uh, spoken with Jean Beliveau. I have a picture in my home of Guy Lafleur, Rocket Richard, and Jean Beliveau, all signed, all standing together in their Habs uniforms. And so there's a history there. But having said that, when you live in a community and you become part of that community, you just, you know, you indoctrinate yourself as to what's going on in the city. And I decided, okay, now I've got to cheer for the Leafs, and I'm happy to do so. You know, but <laughs> unfortunately, all the years that I've been living here, They've never won the Stanley Cup. I mean, the last time was 1967. And each year, it's like the spring thaw. The enthusiasm for the Leafs just kind of tails off. And, and I don't know what it is, but the energy in the team just seems to dissipate by the time they hit the playoffs. And during its seasons, they've done extremely well. I mean, the past couple would, would be a great example where they, yeah. you know, they look like a juggernaut, look like they were going to be there at least in the final and have not made it. So... Uh, fingers crossed uh, they'll be able to do it this year. But, you know, it, it's almost become a standing joke every year among <laughs> Leaf fans that, no, nah, no, nah, they ain't going to make it again this year. <laughs> True enough. This will be the year, Gord. Yep. And I have to tell you, you'll appreciate this. I'm living in the situation you talk about. My wife, Vicky, has lived in Toronto much longer than she ever lived in her hometown of Montreal. But she still says, Habs, Habs, Habs. There's no other team to cheer for. So, yeah, you know, I... I and the crowds at the Bell Center and, and the old Forum, uh, which is the, I, I love being at the Forum. There are diehard Leaf fans and there are diehard Habs fans, but the Habs fans seem to be a little more rabid in their enthusiasm about the team. And, you know, they will let you know, let the public know or let the authorities or the NHL know uh, about their displeasure of certain things that happen. I mean, look at the riots that happened over Rocket Richard. I don't think you'd see that happen in Toronto. People are more law abiding, let's say. <laughs> um, or, or less less boisterous, let's put it that way. And, <laughs> but sports is something where, like, I've had nothing to cheer about in the NFL for years. I was an Oakland Raiders fan, and they've done mm. nothing, nothing for decades. And unfortunately, that's just the situation. But, you know, when you have a team, you love a team, you stick with them. And certainly that Leafs-Habs rivalry is great. We still love it. Yeah. Moses Snymer, genius visionary or other? You worked with him so closely. What what do you think about him? No question. No question. A visionary. No question. Um, he's got great ideas. I think he's somewhat frustrated in the fact that he didn't have enough people around him to carry them out or didn't have the, I don't know, the infrastructure to get them all done. The fact that he came up with City TV is a brilliant idea. It's no question. It's brilliant. It changed broadcasting. I mean, City TV has been imitated any number of times around the world. Everyone, when they find out in broadcasting, in the U.S., for example, if they find out you're from City, they're kind of fascinated by it because of the things that we did and the changes that we made, the format changes, and, and our style was unlike any other. I mean, we did away with tripods. Everything was handheld. The cameras were always handheld because that was more, you're in the street. You know, when you have a, a tripod, you're, you're, you've got a lock-off shot, and it's so structured. That's the way everyone else is doing it. Let's do it handheld to let you know you're there. And anyway, uh, that was just one of, of a thousand things that Moses instituted that were uh, absolutely perfect. Gord, you worked over 20 years with David Onley, the former Ontario Lieutenant Governor who just passed away. He was all about resilience. Yes. He really helped us recognize the abilities of the so-called disabled people. Yep. What are your thoughts on David Onley? David Onley was a sweet human being. 
he and his wife Ruth Ann were cut from the same cloth. I mean, they were they're just loving, caring, honest, happy people. The world needs several billion more of them because they lived every day believing that everyone has value, everyone has something great about them, everyone is welcome. I mean, that was his attitude and her attitude. I mean, Ruth Ann used to sing the national anthem at Leaf Games and Blue Jay Games, and, and David was an extraordinary guy in that he did not let his uh, affliction, let's say, hamper him. I can't tell you how many times I walked out into the parking lot after work and, and seeing David getting into his vehicle and saying, David, uh, can I give you a hand? No. Thank you, but no. He insisted on doing it himself, and he wanted to be an example for every quote-unquote disabled person anywhere. He disliked, and, and, and I agree with him, he disliked the term disabled because it really has a negative connotation. It means that you can't do something. He wanted people to think these are people with abilities, not disabilities. Everyone is capable of doing something. And he pointed out that it's just a shame that the unemployment numbers among quote-unquote disabled peoples is so high that we, we refuse to, to, or we, not that we refuse, but we continually just don't get it, that, that, dis, that disabled people do uh, are capable of doing so many things and we don't employ them and we don't give them the opportunities and, and we, you know, we assign them the, the term disabled. In other words, the whole thing has a negative connotation and I, he's right, no question. And Guy had a great sense of humor. I, I remember his laugh so well, you could hear him a mile away. <laughs> and he was just a hilarious guy. Had time for everyone. Most people would say, well, sorry, I got to get rolling, got to do something. Newsrooms are very busy places. He always had time to talk to you about anything. And he had a fascination for science. He even wrote a book on uh, space travel. You know, was just a, a decent, kind human being. And everyone loved him. You will never, ever, ever hear any human being have a negative word to say about David Onley. So what a tremendous example. And he was the absolute perfect choice as Lieutenant Governor. Gordon, another person I want to ask you about is John, formerly J.D. Roberts. He's currently a big-time U.S. news anchor on Fox News. Yep. Did you see this kind of career move coming for him? You were friends with J.D.? Yeah, I saw this coming for him. He's got talent, no question about it. And, you know, without it, he wouldn't be where he is. You know, he was started in radio. He was at, at Chum, and he did overnights uh, as a disc jockey. And I used to come in occasionally and sub for Dick Smythe, who did the morning run on Chum AM. And uh, he would come in and, and talk and, and talk about his aspirations in the business. And, you know, I wish I was in your position. And I, and I said, well, you know, I'm lucky to be in my position. Eventually, he got a job at City uh, because he was at Much Music and then wanted to to show his more serious side and, and get involved in journalism, and he did, and he became successful at it, and, and good luck to him. You know, he's still got a lot of friends in the city. Gord, you were at the funeral for Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau in 2000. Yep. You have a story about Fidel Castro appearing in person. Yes, that was a big question, you know, that uh, Pierre Trudeau was um, an everyman, in the sense that he had time for a lot of people with different opinions. They didn't all have to be cut from the same cloth, as it were. And so he had a kind of relationship with Fidel Castro over the years. And the United States, of course, regarded uh, Fidel Castro as a pariah because he was a communist and had a communist government. But Trudeau saw some, some of the values in the policies enacted by Castro. And everyone wondered, would Castro show up at the funeral? 
and he did. And the buzz going through the crowd was was incredible. Everyone, oh my! And the cameras, like they they had, they called it a pool. They had all of, of the uh, journalists in a pool position, like we were roped off in a separate area where we couldn't roam and, and take pictures of people doing whatever. We had to shoot from one particular spot, and so the cameras uh, were all active. The stills cameras, you could hear the motors whining as they were taking their shots, and of course, all the video people were doing their thing. That was incredible because it was at the Notre Dame Cathedral in Montreal on Rue Saint-Jacques. And so it was quite an experience and seeing all the foreign dignitaries showing up and something I'll remember forever. Well, Gord, in your career, you interviewed prime ministers, premiers, mayors. Who was really memorable to you? A lot of them. Uh, Mel Lastman. You know, I, I always expected him to say, hey, can I, can I sell you a fridge? But <laughs> yeah. You know, he was a very, uh, he was one of the common men, let's say. Uh, he loved people and talking to people and did, you know, quite a job. Most of the mayors of the city I've spoken with, prime ministers, all of them. Chrétien, uh, Jean Chrétien was, was uh, an interesting guy, very friendly guy. And he never tried to present himself as something special. He was one of the guys. He used to call himself the guy from Shawin again. And that's, yeah. who, he, that's who he is, that's who he was. Uh, Stephen Harper was an interesting guy, too, and I think in some ways the country misses him uh, because he had certain policies. Or He was a fiscal conservative, and people like that. I think Canadians, Americans as well, like people who are close to the center in politics. They may be a little bit left or a little bit right, but that's where people like their politicians from because they want a bit of both. They want uh, you know somebody who's socially responsible, but fiscally responsible as well, and so that's a blend of a liberal and a conservative. And that's why you'll see, in many cases, a liberal prime minister or a conservative prime minister sometimes are not that different in, in their policies. But uh, yeah, I met a lot of them. And, uh, but Pierre Trudeau was a really interesting guy. I mean, here's a guy who dated Leona Boyd, Barbara Streisand. I mean, he was cool. <laughs> yeah. and, you know, I was on the radio in Halifax when uh, it was announced that he was going to marry uh, Margaret Sinclair, uh, a fascinating individual. I mean, he really put Canada on the map politically and in terms of social awareness. Those were some of the people you spoke to, Gordon, in your career. I also want to ask you about some of the big stories you've covered. You've been there for all of them. Terry Fox's his heroic marathon run, yep. the events surrounding former Toronto Mayor Rob Ford, 9-11. What sticks out for you as the biggest stories that you covered? 9-11 would be, a, you know, something that changed the world. And the pandemic, I mean, I wasn't on air for it. But it too, we've never seen anything like that. That's incredible. Tsunami. I was in Thailand, Sri Lanka, and uh, Indonesia shooting stories there. And only in the movies would you see this kind of damage. It looked like a nuclear bomb had gone off. I mean, I distinctly recall being in, in Indonesia and in Thailand and seeing what happened there because the tidal wave had gone in two kilometers in some places, two kilometers inland, and wiped out everything. And you don't realize the power of water and, but when you think about a tsunami, it's not just water, but it's sand and rocks and everything else that, that go in it. And it's like a bomb going off. But in particular, in a place called uh, Kalmanai in Sri Lanka, Steve Bourne and I were there. And it was like, honest to God, going from the main road into the, to the town. It was a town of, I think, 15,000 or so. Everything was destroyed. And anything that was upstanding was badly damaged. And it looked like a war scene. And there were 11,000 people dead. There were bodies everywhere. 
I said to Steve during one of our breaks as we got ready to shoot, um, I said, you know what? Back home, the BMWs and Mercedes are parked outside Starbucks and people whining while they wait for their $4 coffee. And you see people this in this village of Kalmanai completely distraught and traumatized. What an incredible contrast it was. That's when, and I was there when, when Prime Minister Paul Martin uh, visited the area and the media was allowed three questions. I got two of them. And <clears throat> I said to him, you know, you have to be incredibly moved by what you're seeing. Have you ever seen anything like this? And he said, no, never. And he said, you'd have to be a stone not to be emotionally upset by what you're seeing here. And so that was, you know, an interesting situation. I mean, you know, I've had a lot of uh, travels in my life. I've done a ton of international travel. That one sticks out like a sore thumb. Gord, that maybe led you to your passion for charitable organizations. You talked about some of your work with the Herbie Fund yep. at Sick Kids Hospital. But also maybe you want to talk about some of the other associations that you've lent not only your time, but your passion for Global Medic, the Children's Breakfast Clubs, Second Chance Scholarship Fund. You want to talk about some of these? Yeah, uh, I've been a board member of Global Medic for 20 years. Global Medic is a disaster relief organization founded by a guy named Raul Singh, and he was a Toronto paramedic. You know, he realized that when when the rules change in, in, in uh, medicine, when you know, certain equipment cannot lo no longer be used because it's been upgraded, that what happens to the old stuff? It either ends up in a landfill or a warehouse, and if it's in a warehouse, it's going to end up in a landfill. And he thought, this is crazy. Somebody somewhere in some country can use this stuff. So he would hold tur uh, barbecues, T-shirt sales, and when he raised $7,500, he would book a shipping container and then take some time and go over to whatever country it was and distribute these medical supplies. There were gurneys, there were beds, there was you know all kinds of different uh, uh, medical equipment, uh, medical things, and you know the uh, medications themselves, in many cases, still had a year of efficacy left. So you can't discard them; they're still mm -hmm. incapable of being used. And so he did that, and I did a. I used to do a series called "The Livable City," where you know you would point out people who are doing nice things for the city. And a cameraman suggested I speak to Raul, so I did. And he said, you should come with us. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, we're going to Cambodia, and we're going to support the children's hospital there and give away a bunch of equipment. And I thought to it, and I thought, you know, he's got Toronto firefighters, Toronto police officers, and paramedics, all of them, on their own time and their own dime, going over to Cambodia and helping him out. And I thought, this is a great story about Toronto. So I did kind of a five-part uh, series on it. And it went over big. And, and since then, a after that first series, he said, you know, we're a young organization. Which, would you consider being on the board? He said, we can't pay you anything. We never will because it's a charity. And I said, sure, I'll do that. And I did. And I've since done, I know, five or six documentaries with him. And he's now grown to the point where, I mean, he was awarded the Time Magazine, one of the 100 most uh, influential people in the world. And he attended a dinner where he sat with Oprah Winfrey and people of that nature, you know. And so... He's gained a huge amount of popularity. Well, he got started when City put him on the map. And we were happy to do so because he's doing great work and still does. And I just, uh, I was in Ukraine uh, last summer, when, uh, you know, during the war. And I was in Odessa. And I was there for Global Medic and helping to hand out breakfast uh, meals to some of the refugees who were there. And you see these people with completely traumatized eyes. Uh, you know they've been through that they've never been through anything like this, and uh, many of them were internally displaced, meaning that 
the Russians had bombed their villages and communities and they ran to the major centers like Odessa to seek food and shelter. You know, I recall seeing many people lining up for their breakfast meals that I was handing out and I'm looking at them thinking, oh my God, you, you imagine if I was in their shoes, what would I do? And I said to myself, and I've asked a couple of people, what if in Toronto, I walked up to you as you're going down the street and said, suddenly everything you know and have is gone. Your house is gone. Everything you had there, all your possessions are gone. You have no food. You have no money. You have no shelter and your kids are crying. What would you do? You know, if you ask yourself that question, your options are, are pretty bleak. And this is a very wealthy city in a very wealthy country. And I thought the reason why so many people, refugees, have found success in countries like Moldova and many parts of Ukraine that are not under attack currently, and Romania, Bulgaria, uh, the neighboring countries of Ukraine, the reason why they have found open arms there is because the people there lived under the communist regimes and lived under the Soviet Union and had nothing. So they realize what it's like to have nothing and you know to be to have to live without and so they can relate to it and that's why they welcome the refugees with open arms i remember a story of a woman in in ukraine in odessa she's walking down the street one day she sees a woman standing there with two kids crying she said what's wrong what's the matter she said well i'm a refugee i have nowhere to go i have nothing and she's not anymore you don't you're coming with me and she <laughs> took her home and she said you'll stay with me for as long as it takes wow that is huge compassion and you know there's not enough of that in the world i think well it's an absolutely horrible situation yep. but as you know gord being on the ground and seeing it with your own eyes it certainly gives you as you say an appreciation yep. for what we have here yep as we close up and i appreciate all your time i do want to ask you you alluded to you're still cycling yep are you still into tennis uh i haven't played tennis in in a year uh <laughs> I, I should get back to it and i have a friend in florida who keeps telling me get down here we got to play some tennis but the, I do keep in shape doing various things. I, I cross train and, uh, you know, use all kinds of, of different equipment. Cycling has become much more difficult in Toronto. You read about the number of cyclists who are hit, and unfortunately, some of them don't make it, which is a shame, even though we now have uh, cycling lanes, which is a good thing. The population here is, is increasing by the day. All you have to do is look at the number of new condo towers you see on any street corner. And so that's unfortunate, but, you know, yeah. I still cycle. Are you on social media, Gord? Where can we best follow you and what you're up to with all your various charitable organization activities? I'm not huge on social media. I do have uh, um, a site on Facebook. I'm on Instagram as well. And, and I had a Twitter account. When I had something to say about, you know, the news or whatever, then, you know, that, that I thought a lot of people would want to know about, then I would get on there. But, you know, mainly I'm living uh, my personal life now. I still do a lot of things, like I'm into documentary work and that sort of thing, but I don't have the, the kind of uh, position that I had before, so I don't have a lot to say. I don't like giving my opinion about a lot of things because really, who cares, right? I'm not in a position where I can affect any change like that, and um, I don't like being critical. Uh, I'm more of a person who loves getting along with other people. I'm a supporter, not a detractor. So. From that standpoint, uh, you won't see a lot from me. You may in, in the near future. I'll be doing some more stuff, but uh, you'll have to wait for that. And certainly, if anyone wants to know more about what Gord's up to, you can go to his website, gordmartineau.ca, and it lists many of the charitable organizations that he is involved with. Right. Gord, great 
getting to know you. I appreciate all your stories. Uh, and we're going to, you and I will continue to go Habs versus Leafs. I'll be thinking <laughs> about you when they next meet. Right. And I wish you continued success. Thanks very much, Andrew. Thanks for having me on. And uh, best of luck to everyone, all your listeners. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure having you. Bye. And to the listeners, we thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. On behalf of Gord Martineau, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's Take This Outside, a new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at letstakethisoutside.ca. I'm Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app.